that sort of thing. I actually wasn't anticipating uh, uh, being prayed for. I wasn't actually even anticipating talking about Spain, and yet, uh, as God would have it, uh, I, wanted, I was going to talk about missions in general, uh, not, uh, not thinking about uh, my trip, uh, because my title of the series is Radical Love, Radical Results, and sometimes, well, often, it's easy to talk about results because they're so tangible. Uh, what's not so tangible is love. Uh, so today I want to focus my message on love. Like, how do we get love by God? The big idea of my sermon is pretty simple. If you are loved by God, if God touches you, if you're impacted by God's love, there's going to be radical results. Now, it's hard to talk about, well, how does God do that? How do we experience God's love? How do we know that we love by God? How do we feel loved by God? Uh, we, it's easy to look at things people have done because they've been greatly impacted by God. I mean, particularly missionaries. So, you know, if you look at all the, uh, some of the famous missionaries of which uh, many of these names would be very uh, familiar to us, uh, William Carey, an English guy that goes uh, to India, or uh, Judson, an American guy that goes to Burma or Myanmar, or David Livingston, a Scottish guy that goes to Southern Africa, or George Muller, or Hudson Taylor who ends up in China, or Amy Carmichael who's in India for 56 years, or Nate Saint or, and Jim Elliott. Nate Saint and Jim Elliott both died in Ecuador uh, taking the gospel. Or Eric Little, who was actually born in China, a Scottish guy, and his parents were missionaries, and he went back to China where he actually ended up dying. But, you know, we look at all these famous missionaries and we say, my gosh, what the heck would motivate somebody to go to weird places? And many of them actually left with a similar type of a prayer. And it was a prayer that was sort of rooted in the Jesuit movement, uh, the Catholic Jesuit movement. The Catholic Jesuit movement, uh, when they were training up uh, Jesuits, they were sort of missionaries for the Pope. And the idea was that They'd go anywhere that the Pope wanted them to go, no questions asked, uh, for however long they needed to go, they'd just go. And so many missionaries have had a similar prayer. And in fact, most of these missionaries that I've just mentioned ended up in countries they didn't want to go to or weren't planning to go to. I mean, you know, I think Livingston wanted to go to India. He ends up in Africa. Others wanted to go to India and they end up in China. Others wanted to go to China and they end up in India. You know, it's just like this is beyond our natural uh, ability or our natural inclination. I mean, if you're planning to go to India and you end up in Africa, believe me, it's two totally different cultures. Two, I mean, you're going to be very disappointed if you've learned you know, some dialect of Indian uh, that they speak in India. Now, they speak a lot of languages in India, and you end up in, in Africa. Uh, but the testimony is this. When people have been impacted by God, the desire is, God, just send me anywhere. At any time, do whatever you want to do in me. And then the reports back from missions after the fact would invariably be this. It was the most blessed thing they could ever have done with their life. It was the most miserably difficult thing that they ever did in their life. And often, mission, missionaries will say, we never ever experienced the presence of God. It wasn't like we felt God is with us. In fact, often they'll feel like God deserted them or they'll be like, God, like, 
this is like ridiculously difficult. Where the heck are you? Why am I suffering? I'm trying to do your work. And yet when they look back on everything, they say, man, this was just so blessed. This is a, a perplexing thing for me to try and preach on. It's like, okay, so how do we experience this love of God, which then ends up transforming us and changing us and, and motivating us? And if we were, if we were Methodists, I'd, I'd probably be talking about, you know, how the Methodist movement started and uh, Wesley and, and how, you know, all the great things he did. Uh, and we can see the results of his ministry. But, like, what was it that Wesley experienced? Like, what was it that totally transformed him and that he was willing to go to places that nobody else wanted to go to and do things that nobody else wanted to do? Uh, it's just, it's very, uh, it's very mystifying to me. If, and now, we, as we in the, the vineyard movement, uh, you know, I talk about John Wimber because he started... Uh, the vineyard movement is like 500 and something vineyard churches in North America, and we're losing track internationally because it's like 2,000, and they're growing. And so it's kind of hard to know exactly where they all are because different parts of the world are just self-governed. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, but the thing that was so interesting for me with John Wimber, and I only had very little time with John Wimber. John Lynch, you spend a lot of time with John Wimber. He went on missions trips with him. So John would know, John Lynch would know John Wimber a lot better than I ever would. But the thing that, that sort of gripped me with John, it wasn't that he was a great Bible teacher, which he was. It wasn't that he was used by God to do a lot of healing, because he was incredibly used by God to do healing. It wasn't that he was used by God to be an unbelievable, prophetic, accurate voice again and again. The thing that... In, that so captivated me with John, and this, this is so bizarre because I'm so not musical, was John's ability to connect music and the presence of God. So for a total like non-musical dude like me, there was something about John, you know, the, the, the image I have in my, in my mind is John at the keyboard worshiping the Lord. And like this, the tears are streaming down his, his, his cheeks. And it just so happens that it happens to be a church service and there's like, you know, hundreds of people joining in. But you would never know it because if you just looked at John, it was just him and Jesus. And there was something hugely contagious about that. And if, if there was anything that I sort of liked about John, it was his high value for the presence of God. Or should I say it this way, his sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's presence and knowing how to do with what the Holy Spirit is doing. Uh, on a very uh, sort of localized uh, note, I mean, Thursday night at Life Group, uh, Rocco led us in some worship, and it was one of those experiences. We were in a small little group, and it was just like off the charts. I mean, and it was off the charts because there was a sense of experiencing the Lord. I mean, that's what we experienced. It's not necessarily the song choice was what you want to do, or, you know, I don't know how to describe that. This is the, mystery, the difficult thing about worship. we all got opinions about what's good music. we all got opinions about what songs we should play. Now, believe me, if it was me influencing our worship team, which you really don't want to have happen, it would be really, really loud, and it would be really a lot of drums, and uh, it would be like nobody else would like it unless you really like heavy rock and roll, because that's just sort of what I think I like. I mean... Uh, but it's, it's not, I, I, it's like you can't put a finger on it. it the, the, 
you put a finger on it because when you worship, you experience God's presence. Now, if that's singing a hymn, do hymns. If that's singing like praise songs, do praise songs. If that's you're singing songs where you know they're intimate and they're meditative, then do that. It, the point is, are you connecting with the Lord? You know, that's the real, the real interesting thing and the real, and the real challenge. Trying to describe the love of God, the presence of God, experiencing that presence is a challenge because we can talk about God, and that's good. We need to talk about God. We need to understand God. But we also need to use our understanding of God to experience God. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I would love us to, uh, to try and experience that in some way or another uh, today. It's more than just believing God exists. That's important. It's experiencing God's love for us personally. The Bible says God is love. If we know God, we're going to know love. And if we know God, love, we're going to experience love. I mean, but, but I can talk about love, you know, for the whole sermon, and you're not going to experience love. I mean, that's the frustration or the mystery of doing what I'm trying to do uh, today. But uh, I am saying that, you know, we want to experience God's love. If I look at our little church, I can tell you some phenomenal, phenomenal stories of people that have done some incredible things because they've experienced God's love, personally. I mean, one, I've got to keep the person's name unnamed because they did this anonymously. But way back when we were, uh, you know, way back when, this person said, how about we do a Christmas party and we're going to rent out the Holliston Country Club and this person said, I want to pay for everything. I want to pay for the, the country club. I want to pay for a top-class meal, not, not, not like a low-budget meal, a high-budget meal. I want to pay for that, and I want people to bring all the friends and guests they want, and I'll pay for that too. And I'm like, okay, this person's not like really wealthy. And then the person said to me, you know, we got married, and we didn't really know Jesus. We never really had a big wedding. So instead of spending the money in the wedding, I want to do it for this. And I'm like, wow. And we did. And we had an incredible party. But the thing is, you can see the results of someone's being touched by the Lord and the, and the way God has loved them. Uh, and on the other hand, you know, there's people in this church, which again are not millionaires, and they've just given huge amounts of money to this church, like, like way more than 10% than the Lord is asking for. And they've done it like anonymously, they haven't said, Rob, I need you to spend the money this way and I'm going to control every direction that you, you know, just make sure. No control, just like ridiculous amount of money. And you say, wow, how does somebody do that? I mean, they've got plenty of needs on their own. Just ridiculous generosity. Because they've been touched by the love of God in such a way that it's their personal sacrifice to God. It's got actually nothing to do with you know, the church and how we do it. Their whole delight is just, Lord, I'm doing this, uh, you know, uh, to you. And there are many, many, many of you in this church which do all sorts of acts of kindness. You know, you take time, you invest in other people in this church, you are very busy people, and yet you'll take your time to do, you know, ridiculously kind acts of service. And, you know, when I hear about that and I see how people are being taken care of and loved, where people haven't expected it, you can only say this is unbelievable kindness that's come because somehow other people have been touched by the love of God. So you can see the results 
of being touched by the love of God, but it's not so easy to articulate, okay, so how did they experience the love of God? Or what was this big defining moment? Or how was it that people's hearts were so softened and they wanted to please God? You know, that is the, the challenging part of, uh, of doing what we do. I mean, I was blown away in terms of service. I was at a meeting at the, the hospital in Milford, and a bunch of cl- churches serve at the hospital, and we are like the smallest, most irrelevant church at the hospital. We're not Catholic. We're not even in Milford. And I'm sitting with all the clergy uh, there, and, you know, obviously most of them are Catholic. And um, the president of the hospital is giving us a, uh, an hour of his time to thank us as clergy, which is pretty amazing right there. Uh, and then Rosemary Cooley's name comes up. Yeah, Rosemary from our church. She becomes the hero in this meeting. And I'm like, how'd that happen? And I'm like, we've got all these like paid clergy and whatever not. And, and Rosemary comes up. She's like this, the, the good example of somebody that's doing a great amount of prayer in the hospital and covering all the bases and loving on... And from the hospital standpoint, they say, we just really like Rosemary. We like her attitude. We like the way she does things. She's not pushy. She recognizes different people's different faith. If ever you go to Milford Hospital admissions, one of the questions there is what church you belong to. You want to fill that out because Rosemary will get that information and, and come and find you. So, yeah, there's just a lot of great people. But my question, I guess, would be this way. Uh, how would you describe your hunger or thirst for God currently? You know, where are you at? I mean, we all go through phases in our lives where we feel close to God or feel far away from God or we're seeking God or we're trying to experience God or we used to experience God. But Psalm 42, 1 uh, describes it this way. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. Is that where you're at today? And I would have to guess probably not. Uh, but my charge as a pastor is how do I get you to that place and how do I instill in you a hunger for God very challenging because I can talk about God I can talk about the things God has done I can try and inspire you but ultimately I'm trying to get you to have a hunger for God that only you can have and because we're all different uh, what's going to create a hunger for me is not going to create a hunger for you Uh, listen to the way uh, Jesus Praise to God the Father just before uh, he's crucified. Uh, this is John 17, 25 and 26. Jesus says it like this. O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. Uh, this is Jesus speaking. And these disciples know you sent me. Okay, they know they sent him. I have revealed you to them. That says a lot. Unless God is revealed to us, we can't figure him out. I have revealed you to them. I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. I mean, this is a a verse which you kind of have to read over and over and over and slowly again, because we're basically saying God's love will be in us, in Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, in us. And And that's what we're desiring. Uh, Psalm 80, verse 3, in the NIV uh, is pretty interesting, but in the NLT, it says it this way. It says, turn us again to yourselves, O God. 
Turn us again to yourselves, O God. It's like back to front. Turn us again to yourself, O God. It's like we can't turn ourselves. Like the psalmist is saying, hey, God, listen, I desperately need you, but I don't know how to do that. So will you give me the ability to be turned to you? I mean, it's very, it's like, what? And if you read it in, if you read it in the NIV or the ESB, you'll get it this way. Restore me. Restore us, O God. Restore us. But restore us kind of captures it, but at the NIV, turn us again to yourself. Turn us. Turn us. We can't turn ourselves. God, you do it. You turn me to you. <laughs> it's a very uh, interesting uh, phrase. But it's a great prayer because there's an acknowledgement that we can't do it and we need God to turn us or to say differently, to open our hearts or to put a desire in us like a deer pants for water. But we're asking God to do that. God, you do it in us. Uh, it's like, God, make us alive. And uh, indeed, that is, what we, uh, that is what we're asking to do. You know, another example about talking about radical love and radical results, we can look at the Old Testament and see all the works that Moses did. I mean, they just go on and on and on, and pages and pages and pages. But there's a short little verse about Moses entering the presence of God, and his face so radiates that he comes out, he's different. Now, that little encounter like transforms Moses. And then he does a whole lot of incredible things. But we can focus on all the incredible things Moses did, but can we also have a Moses-type experience? Can we desire that we encounter God's presence and that in encountering God's presence, God transforms us? This is the heart of what I think God desires uh, for us. So today I want to uh, look at... John chapter 12, if you've got a Bible, if you've got an app on your phone, uh, John chapter 12, and if you've got an app on your phone, do it in the New Living Translation, so we're singing from the same sheet of music, so to speak. Uh, and I want to look at the radical love part in this story, rather than the radical results, because this story in the Bible really captures, again, an unbelievable act of radical love. And this is uh, Mary anointing Jesus' feet. So uh, let me just read this account uh, to you in Matthew. I mean, in John chapter 12. Six days before Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was amongst those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. The essence of the story, the focus of the story, is the ridiculous, extravagant love that Mary pours out on Jesus by just like dumping a whole year's worth of perfume on Jesus. And the interesting part of the story, especially if you're reading a story that you're familiar with, uh, is to say, well, how does this apply to me? Uh, where am I at in, in this story? Uh, and when we do that, we 
sort of put the spotlight on ourselves. It reveals a little bit of our own personality or uh, where we are currently. Uh, you might read the story today. I'm familiar with that story. You know, what else is God going to say to me today? You know, you keep reading. Or you stop with the story and you, you, like, think about it a bit. And one way to think about a story that you're familiar with is to personalize it. Like, put yourself in there. Put yourself in the picture. And ask yourself, okay, how would you respond? What would be your attitude of how others have responded? Would you feel comfortable? Would you feel encouraged? Would you be like cheering for Mary? Would you be a little bit like annoyed with her? Uh, what about everybody else in the, in the story? And the other question you might ask is, okay, Jesus in like a week's time is going to be dead. You know, if these people knew that Jesus was going to be dead in a week's time, would they have responded differently? Uh, or if you knew you were going to be dead in a week's time, would you respond differently to the way you're living right now? Uh, you know, those are the sort of questions that we should be uh, asking and stirring up within us as we read a story like this. But if we look at each of these characters, if you had a bulletin insert, uh, you might want to just follow along with me and think about how you may or may not respond uh, in each of these characters. I think each of them does something which is pretty good and something which is not so good. But I mean, think about Lazarus, firstly. I mean, Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus. So from a good standpoint, at least Lazarus was there. He was present. It's like you. You just showed up to church today. You, you're just like physically here. Good. You're here. That's, that's really great. But you would think, oh, well, I would think, that if Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, that there'd maybe just be like one word somewhere, one sentence that Lazarus said in the whole Bible. I mean, it's just like silence. Nothing. You don't even like have Lazarus say, thank you, Jesus, or go God, or I'm alive, or just, you know, and I think it's so often the case for many of us. You know, we come to church and like, how's God going? What's God doing in your life? Can't think of a thing. Lazarus, like, raised from the dead. I can't think of a thing to say. It's like, I don't know, maybe it's just shortened words. I mean, I don't know. But look, he was there. He experienced, he witnessed an awesome opportunity. Uh, but yeah, I mean, say something, Lazarus, say something good for the Lord. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, maybe that's where you are in the picture. It's like, I don't know how to articulate anything. I just want to watch what God is doing. And wow, you know, I don't know. It's good. At least be there. <laughs> watch what God's doing. It's, that's a good thing. Uh, let me jump, uh, let me jump to Judas. I mean, th what's the good thing that Judas does? Well, I've got to put this in inverted commas. Uh, Judas cares <laughs> for the poor. And it is kind of interesting because, you know, when, Jews, when Judas betrays Jesus and Jesus identifies him at the Last Supper, he goes out to do his thing, and all the disciples assume he's going to take care of the poor. So somehow or other, Judas had this reputation of being interested in the poor, whether it was for real or not. Clearly, it seems like he wasn't really interested in the poor, but uh, he was really interested in, in money. Uh, but so uh, yeah, I don't give I don't give Judas like any uh, good points. I don't think Judas is anything good. Uh, you know, bad points pretty obvious. Entit you know, entitlement mindset. Uh, you know, I need some of the money for myself. But there's a little bit of Judas in all of us. I mean, I hate to point this out, but we all have an entitlement mindset of some degree or to some extent where we feel we just deserve. 
we just deserve this, or we deserve this service, or we deserve somebody to treat us well, or we deserve, we deserve, it's our right, it's my, you know, I'm an American, I deserve. We all have a little bit of Judas in us, where we have this entitlement mindset. Uh, Hopefully it's not twisted, where you're stealing. Uh, You know, you take some stationery home from work, you use the company car, you know, I'm entitled to it, they're rich, you know, but I'm not. And You know, we can justify just about anything that we do, but when we you know, under the scrutiny of the Lord's light, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, not so good. You know, I shouldn't have this entitlement mindset. I should have the grateful mindset where, Lord, you know, I just want to be blessed by you. Uh, anyway, uh, I don't give a whole lot of good stuff for, for Judas. And, uh, but Martha, Martha and Mary is a different story. Now, uh, going to Spain, uh, you know, whenever I'm like, forget somebody's name in Spain at church, I just say, Mary, and I get the whole audience, like, it's like, great, I got every single female, because I don't know how it is in Spain, but I think it's mandatory that you have to have Mary somewhere in your name, so they all Mary something, and uh, yeah, it's just like an awesome thing, it's great for people like me, it's just like, Mary, (laughs) got everybody's attention. But you notice that nobody calls himself Judas. There's no like guys called Judas. I mean, that name just like disappeared around about when Jesus died. Like Judas, like Judah, sure. Judas, not such a popular name. Yeah, I wonder why. Yeah. But Martha, Martha and Mary is more interesting. You know, when you look at Martha, she always gets the bad rap. But I actually like Martha. And if we read the accounts in Luke, we see that Martha was the one that actually welcomed Jesus into her home. So Martha, you know, isn't just like a big loser who's always working and missing God. I mean, she actually has the heart to welcome the Lord into the house. And uh, I believe that Martha is serving the Lord the best she knows how. Make him dinner, you know. Uh, the problem, of course, with Martha, and this is more pronounced in the Luke's version than in John's version, but in Luke's version it says this. Uh, Martha says this. Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits there while I do all the work? (laughs) Okay, so yeah, you get the feeling of where Martha's at. She's frustrated. She's working her tail off, and Mary just like hangs around Jesus. But there's something not so good about that. Okay, so the good side of Martha, she invites Jesus into her house, and she's doing all the work. But where where Martha misses it, of course, is she's not recognizing the moment. I mean, Jesus is going to be dead soon. Okay, so, you know, yeah, the food is important, but it's not that important. You know, I have a, we have a funny uh, similar experience here a, at, the, at the church. We, ho- we host uh, the Vineyard Pastors lunch once a month, and uh, we ask people to, uh, that want to serve lunch and do lunch for us. And uh, the, our, my overseer, Don Andreessen from the Kingston Vineyard. Our meetings are pretty long. And often we'll get to when it's lunchtime, and either the person that's busted chops making lunch for us, which is really great, will be pretty anxious that we come and eat before the food gets cold. And uh, they'll tell us, Rob, the, the lunch is ready. Or they'll even walk in the meeting and say, Rob, the lunch is ready. Like, I mean, you're ready like half an hour late. And, uh, you know, we'd all be like dying of hunger. Don, we're half an hour late. And Don is just notorious. Says, the food can wait. <laughs> the food can wait. Because my meeting is more important and I want to connect with the Lord. And, and we're like, oh, Lord, I, Don, just speed it up. But, you know, it's the same thing. It's like, okay, 
we, we can really prioritize food and let food like dominate us. And in this particular story, uh, we don't. We want us to give our attention uh, to, to the Lord. And I think this is where, obviously, the highlight of the story is what Mary does. She doesn't allow the busyness of her life to creep into her devotional life for the Lord. And we all have this challenge where we get busy and we marginalize the Lord or our time with the Lord or our priorities for the Lord because we're busy or we've got problems. Or we, we, but Mary, the example that she's setting here for us is all good. I mean, there's no bad in this example. I mean, the good, good, good. Good, she seeks the presence of Jesus. The, her highest desire is to just be at Jesus' feet. She just wants to be with Jesus. I mean, there's something in Mary where she gets it. It's like, and she probably didn't figure out that Jesus was going to die soon either. She just, everyday, ordinary life for Mary is, I just want to be with Jesus. It just feels good to be around Jesus, to hear what Jesus, I want to serve Jesus. Good. The second part is just extravagant worship. I mean, not just like a little bit, like this extravagant worship where she just pours out all this perf perfume. Now, something which is lost in the story here is the culture in which this is happening. What Mary does to, I mean, to wash Jesus' feet with her hair is pretty, like, uncomfortable. But something which we don't get is that for Mary to wipe Jesus' feet, she had to undo her hair. That was like a major social, like, taboo. You didn't, like, women just didn't let down their hair. I mean, I don't know what an equivalent would be. Maybe it's like you had some formal dinner party and, you know, your wife just rips off her bra and says, okay, let's get busy. Oh, this thing's restricting you. are like, whoa, that's like, oh, okay, it's a little uncomfortable around you now, you know. And yeah, well, but it's just like, okay, we're going to extravagant worship. Just Mary, like, I don't care. It's like all about Jesus. It's like, wow, it's really, it's really great. There's another bizarre thing that's going on here, which we all get invited to that we don't realize is when we worship the Lord, when we've been used by the Lord, often there's some sort of prophetic thing here. Mary was doing something. She was anointing Jesus' feet for burial. She didn't realize that, but Jesus pointed it out. He said, look, in her worship of me, something really fantastic is taking place. She is fulfilling prophecy. Likewise, when we connect with the Lord, when we experience His love, we are in some mystical, strange way experiencing prophetic fulfillment through us, whether it's like go into all the world and make disciples or something. God uses us like He uses Moses when we encounter His presence. It's in that that God somehow mystically, uh, sometimes unbeknown to us or sometimes we're surprised, you know, sometimes we think this is the great thing that we're doing for God, when actually it's something we don't even think about that really has huge impact. And we go on missions trips and we plan meetings and we do things and we have all our own vision and we come up with our vision planning and go away in vision retreats and we come up with all our own idea of vision, vision. And yet God is like on some totally other agenda. It's like, no, really, this is what I'm at, about and doing. And it, it's good for us to, to realize that. Organizations come and go. I mean, we've seen the Jesuit organization. We've seen Catholic universities. We've seen hospitals named after Christians, uh, you know, and got the YMCA. I mean, you know, like what's left of the YMC, Christian 
association. Young men's Christian, like nothing. Now, YMCA, great, good. Beth Israel, okay, Jewish organized, great, Beth Israel, you know. But where's the original roots, or Harvard, or Yale, or Princeton, you know, all these seminaries that were started for ministers? Like, where's the Christian part? Well, it's come and gone, for the most part. You know, so what I am saying is this, we can get so carried on with the work, and the YMCA, great, I'm all for it, great, YMCA is great. But where's the God part? Where's the, that part got lost somehow. And yeah, I think it's something important where we stay with the original motivation that started all these great institutions with this incredible love for God. Let me just conclude this way with uh, Revelation 2.1. It says this, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. There is this message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. And now that's pretty mystical language. And then verse 2, it's not at all mystical. It's pretty straightforward. It says, I know the things that you've done, that you do. Now, now in, in these seven letters, you see the good and the bad. And so the Lord Jesus is saying to this church, he says, listen, you've done a bunch of awesome things. You've done a lot, a lot of good things. And I just want to like thank you for doing your good things. And this is the good things I've done. He said, I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I mean, that would be kind of nice if God, if you felt God say that to you. Look, I've seen your hard work. I've seen that you've patiently endured. I know you don't tolerate evil people. Good. You have examined the claims of those who say the apostles but are not. Good. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. You're not a quitter. You've been suffering. You've been persecuted. Great. I mean... And you think, what could be better than this church? I mean, it's just like unbelievable. Hardworking, they're faithful, they make sure the doctrine's straight, you know, they don't quit, they get persecuted, they just keep on going. But then it's like a dagger that goes into their heart. It says in verse 4, But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. And the Lord says, look how far you've fallen. Now, the challenge for us is this. We can get so task-focused that we miss the love of God. And God is saying, you've fallen a long, long way. If you're missing me, if you're missing the love of God, you're missing everything. Jesus is essentially saying, I don't really care about your works. If, if you've lost your heart for me, your works become like trivial. If you've got incredible heart for me, believe me, the works are just going to flow out accidentally. You won't even be able to control them. But God is saying to all of us that our primary focus is to focus on Him. Now, it's so hard to articulate. How do we do that? How do, I, you know, we can stir this up. We can say, yeah, I want to be like a deer that pants for water. But the question is, are you like a deer that pants for water? I, yeah, I, I don't know. I can only ask that question. He has two things which, you know, we've done uh, and I've done that sort of shake things up a little bit. Uh, I don't know how you do your personal devotional time, but the classic way is you'd pray and then you read the Bible. Uh, I've found that switching the order is helpful. I, I like to read my, the Bible first and then pray. And I'll tell you why. Firstly, it just switches it up and it makes it fresh. But more importantly for me is I find that then I'm praying what I've just read. And when I'm praying what I've just read, there's something awesome because now I'm focused on what the Word of God just, I've just read says. 
Whereas if I pray first, believe me, my prayer like yours is going to be, God, help me in this. I need this. I'm suffering here. I need more money here. And you know, this really is hurting. And God, help, help, help. Okay, now let's read the Word of God. And it's like a huge disconnect. Whereas when I read the Word of God first, it's like, oh my gosh, okay, right, great. Okay, and then maybe you'll tag on a request. Similarly, as you know, we switched up the service order here where I preach first and then we worship second. Well, there's been a side benefit to this. One of it is like many of you just coming late for worship when we had it first and I can't even point a finger at you because I used to do the same before I was in ministry. It was pretty painful. My wife really loves worship and as I told you, I'm musically literate. So, you know, going to church is like, okay, when's the sermon starting? And we'd pretty much show up 10 minutes after if we were early. And I hate to admit that. Uh, but when God finally got hold of me and finally stirred me, then all of a sudden I did enjoy worship. It was mystical. It was weird. Uh, but I did like it. But this is what I found. is we switched the order around. Uh, when we hear the word of God first, then when we're going to worship, I've heard from many of you that this has been your experience. Somehow or other, what I've preached and what God has said through His Word starts percolating in you and it comes out in the music and you have the chance when you're worshiping to like meditate on that and, and, and work with what God is doing in your life and it elevates the worship experience uh, in some wonderful, mystical way. So, you know, as we enter into worship right now, I just ask the Lord to just like stir something in you and put your focus on the Lord as opposed to on yourself and say, God, I just, you know, like that Psalm 80 verse 3 says, like, you give me, change me, you give me a desire, enable me to love you, enable me to desire you. You know, it's, let's do that. So why don't we stand and uh, one of the worship team uh, come on up and uh, Lord, I just pray for your people as we uh, enter into worship that uh, you would help us, Lord, and anything that's distracting us from you, Lord, uh, just help us by seeing what it is that's a distraction. Highlight what it is that you're doing in our lives. Lord, stir it up in us that we just become passionate about you and your presence and desiring you. Lord, just put a little bit of uh, Mary in each of us where we just like want to be with you we just want to give everything we've got to you we just consumed by you so lord i just pray that you'd pour out that anointing on all of us we can't make it happen lord we ask you uh, to stir our hearts change our hearts point them towards you in your name jesus amen